Welcome to Shanghai Zan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts, and you can learn more about Shanghai Zan at our website, johnstation.com. I'm Bryce Witwam. And I'm Ali Kasmi. And Ali, as always, we'd like to thank everyone for their continued support、uh, by sharing the news about the podcast to your friends and your family, your pets, your dogs and cats who listen to podcasts. That's very important. And of course, if you like the show, you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Ali, today we're joined by Danny Du, a key player in the design and branding. Anchored in China, but made for the world. Danny's work in Shanghai, particularly with Geely Design Global, and now at BASF's Creation Center, which is based in Shanghai, has marked him as a leader in bringing Chinese design aesthetics to the world. He has also led major creative campaigns at creative agencies. His role in mentoring and leading teams highlight his influence in shaping modern branding within the country. Danny's special practical approach and deep immersion in the local culture has made him instrumental in launching and redefining brands in the fast-paced market. Danny is, I believe, Danny. I can say you're originally from South Africa, right? I'm actually originally from French Concession, Shanghai. <laughs> Dep- depending how far back you want to go, I'm actually an Australian national, but I grew up in Southern Africa. And I can't actually even say I'm originally from South Africa because I was born in Taiwan, and I did not actually grow up in South Africa. I actually grew up in Eswatini, which was called Swaziland, part of the British Commonwealth. That's incredible. <laughs> a tr- a true globalist. Danny's here to share us the real his real world insights from his extensive experience as as we discuss the making of a multinational brand at the intersection of world class design and sustainability. So let's get started, Danny. Welcome to Shanghai Zan. Thank you, Bryce. Thanks, Ali.、Uh, very happy to be here speaking to、uh, long, long-time friends. You know, I think Bryce, we've known each other for what、um, I would say, fifteen years, sixteen years. And Ali, maybe not as long as that, but at least I would say, you know, as going on to fifteen. Yeah, on and off,、uh, we quite often bump into each other in the streets. Uh, at a social level and obviously、um, professionally as well. Yeah, so very good to see familiar faces. Yeah, and and thanks for joining us too,、uh, Danny. This is a very very interesting topic for us because as、uh, as China starts to become much more influential on the production side for brands,、uh, Ali and I recently had、uh, two gentlemen from SD Louder who say that. Chinese products now in the cosmetics phase in, in the cosmetic business are influencing you know the entire world by through the production and and the fast pace in which、uh, new products are developed there. So, I guess the question we have from your design perspective is: Does China have multinational brands, and what merits in the making of a multinational brand being present in many markets, buying international brands? Does China really have a multinational brand? As a designer, my interpretation or definition of a multinational brand is somewhat confusing because do we mean a multinational brand meaning a international company 
with a centralized transnational strategy, but with products and services to meet local preferences and cultures? Or do we mean a brand that's internationally accepted? What's the definition? What's the definition of multinational? Because if it's actually by ways, if if it's functionally, functionally, that you know it has a centralized business strategy, then there are many many um, Chinese multinational brands um, in social media, uh, electric cars, white goods, online logistics, um, and shopping um, e-commerce site, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think for the purpose of this com- conversation, I'm assuming you mean multinational brand that's actually recognized by people as being truly international, which transcends um, borders. Yeah, I mean, if we were to use an example of a multinational brand, not just in terms of the actual um, business organization, but rather than what he actually represents in terms, it's actually authentically and trustworthy based on a true based on a unique um, story. For example, if you take an American fast food company and move it to China, the food that they're actually selling is still intrinsically what they promised. It's an American fast food chain, but they do have products and services that resonate or caters for the local culture and taste. But at the end of the day, it's still an international brand. I think how China at the moment, from what I see, obviously, we don't need to actually speak of the brands. There are new hundreds and hundreds of Chinese EV car brands that has been exported across the world. But are they really multinational or are they just cars made in China that's exported? To me, products and brand is two very different things. Yeah, I think uh, brands are priceless. You can you can very it's very difficult to put a value on the brand, whereas products is much it's a uh, commodity. I guess what I was coming to is I'll give you a story. I was in Thailand uh, this summer, and I had the pleasure of meeting up with some of my former colleagues. I used to work there in in advertising at Lowe. Uh, one of my colleagues picked her, me up in her new car, and this is a lady that could probably afford any car. Uh, but she was driving a BYD electric SUV, and I don't know the model number, but it was the first time I had been in this model of the car, and I was completely impressed by the design aesthetic of it. It was very modern, very chic, uh, and she really liked it. From a design perspective, do designers design for the China market first, or and then they they hopefully that will cascade to other markets and accept by other markets or is it do you actually think about a global product and think about it being accepted by different countries and different people not just necessarily chinese um if we're on the subject of ev cars specifically um obviously china is still the largest market um, for ev cars whether it's actually by uh, regulation, by design, or by default. So because it's actually the largest market, I think most of the design DNA is designed with the intent of satisfying the local um, desire or the design aesthetics. Yeah. However, as the company grows and the export and the local market becomes more saturate, saturated, you obviously need to export. But those exported models, some of them will obviously be initially what's been designed for the local Chinese market, but there will be subcategories 
where on the ground consuming research is conducted to suit local tastes. I think that's a just um, basic um, business principles. You can't actually expect what's liked in one country to be widely accepted in other countries. Um, particularly with Chinese EV cars. I mean, as you clearly see, there are lots of uh, design details in the BYD that's very much uh, uh, inspired by the uh, by the Chinese aesthetics. If you look at some, if you look at Tesla, for example, it's definitely following a less is more design philosophy. But we all know that it's actually much more difficult to do less is more. Yeah, because the idea or the design direction has to be so pure, the intention has to be so clearly defined to uh, make it not lazy, but it's uh, intentional. But if you look at the BYD, if you actually strip it down to the less more less is more approach for the Chinese consumer, it may come across as being lazy or under designed, if you know what I mean. It's actually not designed enough because perhaps the local market is not sophisticated enough from a visual perspective to actually appreciate that less is more. So you do actually need design details as a hook. The one most interesting um, element on the exterior car design, if we want to talk about design specifics, is the taillights. If you look at the taillights on the BYD, it's um, it, there's a lot of stories in it. You, know, you can it almost feels as if there's actually wings movie. It's 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 there's a rhythm to it. It's not um, just liquid crystals running across, which is quite um, which is seen in, in in more sort of European design DNAs. Yeah, within China, the exterior of a car needs to do that. just a little bit of magic to appeal to local market. But getting back to your question, Bryce, I think, yes, the car is very well designed. I think the fact that you actually saw the car in Thailand, which is in Southeast Asia, I think um, the design aesthetics or appreciation of design is probably not too dissimilar to China, um, especially in, car in comparison to the uh, Scandinavian or Northern European um, design aesthetics. But to answer your question, yes, I believe as the companies grow, I think it makes sense to actually conduct the bigger markets to have models that suits local aesthetics um, inspired by um, its, its own culture and heritage. That's really interesting. Do you think that less is more is being now more accepted by Chinese consumers? Because I always saw, I always saw design and history to be related. So if you, I always say that if you go to the Forbidden City, you see Ming style design and I'm sure you guys remember my wife had a furniture store uh, in, in Shanghai and most of the designs were Ming style, which is very simple, which is very much the, the aesthetic of less is more is very simple work. And then come along the Qing dynasty, which of course is the summer palace, which is completely over the top and flashy and all, <laughs> and they just couldn't leave it alone kind of style um, is, is there a is there a greater acceptance by Chinese consumers to accept what you call like the Tesla style, which is very much a simplified version, uh, or are do cons Chinese consumers generally like things, as you said, designed up? They like a lot of like initial touches and things. How how has the uh, design aesthetic evolved? It's really interesting. You mentioned Ming Dynasty design. 
based on my knowledge, I think a lot of that uh, aesthetic during the Ming Dynasty period went uh, was exported to Japan. And if you look at the Japanese design or visual aesthetics, it's very much that less is more approach, uh, quite similar to the Scandinavian. I think, yeah, a lot of this is actually borrowed from the Ming Dynasty. Yeah. So, but I think as technology started to evolve in China, there's better uh, manufacturing or uh, fabrication techniques. And with the invention and innovations of the, uh, the Chinese, um, the design became a lot more uh, elaborate after the Ming Dynasty. Less is more approach. If you look at the history of Chinese um, design culture or visual language, yes, it, it, it's, it's, it's taken place. And it doesn't mean um, it's not part of the um, overall uh, Chinese design DNA. But over the years, obviously, it has evolved. If we were to fast track to the modern age, um, Tesla is probably not the first to actually take that sort of pure, less is more design aesthetics. I think, obviously, I think iPhone or Apple is probably the first um, brand to actually take that approach. But from my perspective, Apple is not a... The design was not just a design aesthetics. I think, as we all know it, um, if you look at IBM, for example, it's always been about systems before people. Whereas Apple has always been about people before, before systems. And the design brief from the outset was to have something that's approachable and friendly and uh, very easy to use by people and based on that design strategy or which is then obviously translated into a design brief we ended up with something as well, what we as what we know as apple today so that is that less is more it came from a very clear uh, design brief that came from a a brand prom promise or brand position which i'm sure you probably know know more than i do given uh, your backgrounds but in recent years, there are a lot of Chinese brands has taken that approach without fundamentally understanding the reason why Apple is this is more. And for right or wrong, some of the design brief became too bland or void of personality. If you were to pick up a phone and probably not just Chinese, you know, any phone or any EV cars for that matter. And if you cover up the logo, it's um, you actually you have to you have to guess what brand it is. And so that sort of takes away the whole intention of less is more. People basically it's a cookie cut. It's a cookie cutting exercise of less is more. And in my opinion, that is um, quite prevalent in the design industry. And I can't actually help myself thinking that perhaps consuming research or the marketers has a strong hand in it because less is more is very easily accepted by everyone. If you have an EV car that's very bland, it's safe, it's safe, it's completely safe. But how safe, how long can you be playing safe? At the end of the day, you have to make a statement and um, stand your ground and say, you know, this is our design DNA. Once you, when you see us without 
you know, seeing the logo, the word marker, or whatever it is, whether it's actually by color, by shape, by form, by sound, by smell, by touch, whatever it is, you know, it's us. So ultimately, that is um, successful design. But I'm not saying it's all bland. I mean, again, going back to EV cars, I mean, as you see, there are literally hundreds of EV brands on the roads in China. There are a few brands when you look at it and say, you know what? Personally, it may not suit my taste, but it's distinctive. But again, those, those are the brands or the companies brave enough to stand the ground and say, you know what? We actually willing to take the gamble. Whether you like it or not, that's us. I was going to add a, an additional dimension as a Tesla car owner. And I was thinking also along the lines of maybe this is something that we kind of talked about as well, um, Danny, uh, a month or uh, a little bit more than that ago. I think there's also this, this, this thought on expectation from a consumer perspective, especially as legacy car brands that have been manufacturing cars for a very long time. There's an expectation that the new electric vehicle that they bring to market will be very different to what they've been driving in the past. And I think Tesla understood that because otherwise they would just be bringing another car into market. And I don't know how much of this has to do with brand and how much of this just has to do with reinventing the category. I get the sense that, you know, even if there is this sense of simplicity that you get in a Tesla vehicle, actually it carries most of the functionality that you would get in any other EV. But it just doesn't carry the weight, the baggage, if you will, that comes with, um, you know, that comes with a Volvo, for example. I know that Bryce drives Volvo. <laughs> or, you know, or with, with any other vehicle. So I wonder if that's what it was. And, uh, and, and I think there's this expectation and this is just my kind of sense, right? It's like there's this expectation from Chinese consumers of of having everything, right? And that sense of minimalism comes through eradication or removal of what's not necessary. And I don't know if that's like I'm not a designer. You know the space a lot better. But I kind of, you know, when I think about Weixin or I think about Alipay or I think about anything that's Chinese or any, any innovation that, that has Chinese origin, it tends to have everything, right? There's the sense that right? And then there's an elimination of what's unnecessary over time or it, you know, spins into its own business. So I think that's just a, I don't know, Chinese way of doing things. I had Hi-Fi as a client, the luxury minivan uh, EV car, and I swear bells and whistles. <laughs> it was like, where... What space in that car can we put another video screen? It was literally, I mean, they had, they were thinking about putting them in the ceiling of the car. I mean, it was like, on wheels. <laughs> but it's really interesting that Ali mentioned uh, Tesla created a new car category. Reinvent the category. Well, they reinvented the car category. But I actually see it differently. I think they reinvented that, that a Tesla is not seen as a car. It's almost like it's a piece of technology or mobile phones Agreed. on wheels. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, it's not a car anymore. And what Chinese company, what Chinese EV companies, or cars have ta- companies have done is they've taken what Tesla has created and basically made it. It's just it's it's literally a technology of wheels function that travels. But it's really interesting that we as 
particularly Bryce and I, we've been driving, we've been, we've had car ownerships for, you know, decades, I would say. Yeah. And in the Western world, a lifespan of a motor vehicle is, it's a, it's a substantial financial outlay for a car. And most of us, especially when I'll speak for myself, I couldn't buy a car um, cash. I had to lease it and pay it off in three years or four years or five years. And then hopefully to trade it in or sell it as a second hand. So the car is actually, uh, it's, a, it's a commodity. It's not something that I would take it into a, to the Apple store and upgrade every two years. Whereas there's this new category, that, in my opinion, that's how um, EV brands or EV cars is, um, has been perceived as in China. That would become the breaking point to see which of the cars from a um, design quality point of view will be um, sustainable and in the long run from product reliability point of view. Danny, there's a lot of innovation on the marketing side in product collaborations. You see this everyone collaborating with everyone else. I mean, even Qingdao Beer with Carl Langenfeld. I saw that one, uh, which is the most bizarre collaboration I think I ever saw. I always think it, that these are often created by the marketing teams and not necessarily by the design folks who they throw throw a product at you and say, hey, guess what? We found... We're luck in coffee and we're talking to Mao Tai. <laughs> so let's let's create a magical product. And then the, 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 the product people are just going, what on earth are we have? What are we going to do about that one? Where do you see collaborations? Is it are they breed innovation? Is it something that that you look forward to at your current job or previous one? Is it something that helps create innovation? Or is it just necessarily sometimes just a, a mash of two products together and it's really more of a marketing side? Or do you think that there's some real evolution uh, in design that occurs through collaboration? I think there's probably three categories that comes to mind. One is obviously a startup where they're really just paying a fee to um, leverage a, uh, an established brand name, yeah? Whether that brand resonates their own brand attributes or personality traits, uh, it's irrelevant. They basically just wanna get a known brand, preferably obviously internationally well-known to, uh, yeah, they leverage whatever they can. I think the second category is probably could be a disruptive category where there's actually a lot more intent. If a brand is perceived as being quite stale, or uh, yeah, and they they wanted to rejuvenate um, moving forward, they may get a brand that's not that's completely dissimilar to their um, um, brand attributes or personality traits to engage with a, uh, a, a new audience. The third category is a no-brainer. It obviously makes sense that you want to be friends with um, similar personality to trade off each other, right, as a partner. So you can actually build what, so you can build whatever you, what you really have. You can build your houses into castles. That's the most logical um, uh, collaborations. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, recently, I went to see a design, an automotive designer OEM, 
and they are a international brand that has been acquired by a Chinese uh, automotive company. And this brand has been recognized as probably one of the best performance um, brand. They were well, very well known in automotive um, racing. So I said to them, I've looked at your lifestyle and accessory and car showroom. And although you have a compelling story of your racing heritage, but all the accessories I see in your showroom is very much products that's been branded rather that's truly performance-based. And they said to me, what do you mean? And I said, I would love to see a hero product exhibited in your accessories and lifestyle showroom of a F1 uh, racing shoe, a proper, proper racing shoe. That's obviously that fits all the requirements that what racing actually needs. But this shoe is not necessarily something only racing drivers would wear. But someone that actually buys a car could wear it. You can actually go to clubbing. You go down to the local pub. You can go grocery shopping with it if you wish. So it's not just buying a jacket from Taobao and you know putting a brand on it. But the product is actually developed with racing performance in mind right from the get-go. So that's the third category. I'll have the materials to actually uh, satisfy the compelling um, stories you want to tell. And the, comp- the compelling story is actually based on the truth because the truth of the materials, it is obviously a high performance and this all the criteria of what we mean by high performance. Yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? When you look at mobile phones as well, without chips and without crystals and without lithium, et cetera, et cetera, there's a lot of limitation to what, what, what possibility. Um, but then in the, in the context of what you're talking about, Danny, you're saying, you know, how do we bring innovation in the face of consumer? Uh, it was just a side note. I was just thinking, uh, like, I was just trying to track back to mobile phones and how it's possible, you know, through ingredients and getting that story across. I guess it works for some categories and it doesn't for others. Yeah, I mean, Louis Vuitton or uh, luxury, European luxury brands quite often uh, collaborate with more disruptive um, designers. I mean, just recently we saw Louis Vuitton collaborate with a very famous um, Japanese designer. I'm sure you've seen. Yeah, I mean, that's something, that's a collaboration that really took me by surprise. But, you know, go, whoa, okay, this is really disruptive. And then you think about it, you know, Louis Vuitton, they constantly want to stay uh, engaged with the younger generation, yeah? And the younger generation, particularly in China, with China having, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's about 30 or 35% um, consumers of luxury brands um, internationally. I'm not sure exactly what sort of age group it is, but I'm assuming uh, out of that 30, 35% to be a high percent of young, yeah? And that's one way to do it, yeah. So you, to keep the brand uh, relevant, yeah, uh, with um, disruption. But getting back to the um, brand, at the end of the day, um, you need to be true what you actually stand for. You don't want people, you don't want your audience to, um, you don't want to surprise them too much that you feel you have to reintroduce uh, yourself to them. They need to. They still need to feel that they are dealing with someone that's uh, familiar. Yeah, I guess also too that a lot of these collaborations are driven by 
social media presence and interaction. I worked uh, on a project with Sprite where we did collaborate with a Baijiu brand, Zhang Xiaobai, and uh, they created this Sprite tasting Baijiu, I should put that put it in that way, which was simply awful. It was the worst tasting thing, but it sold out immediately on, on, on Taobao. Uh, it was a huge, and we got a lot of buzz out of it. I mean, disruption, as you say, disruption does actually get it. You know, buzz does create buzz in the media, in social media particularly. But from a long-term perspective, is it damaging? I don't know. I mean, going back to LV, uh, they collaborate with, uh, I, I think I'm not, I may not be pronouncing the name correctly, Yayo, Yayo Kusama. I think uh, she's famous for those, uh, I think it's uh, pumpkin illustrations. I mean, this person, this designer is like in her 90s. You know, she's definitely not, uh, you know, a newcomer. You know, she's an established, uh, internationally uh, renowned uh, fashion designer. So, you know, it's disruptive. Yes, it is different that, you know, to collaborate with LV. But she is, um, yeah, she's, she's, she's established. So I'm not saying it's actually wrong to have uh, multi-flavored ice cream. Or to have Maltai um, Penfold wines, yeah, where wine and Maltai is actually blended together purely for the sake of uh, messaging or story building. But whether it's actually beneficial from um, a brand building perspective, um, let's see. I don't have an answer to that. It would be interesting because you never know. Maybe Maltai one day would become the French wines, you know, would take over the world. You're a creative leader. You have large teams of people that work under you. How do you inspire them? What inspires you to create a creative spark? You know, especially with, you know, unique design aesthetic elements. What are the things that you tell your teams to, to do? I grew up in the early advertising days, yeah, working with your brother, where we'd sit in a room and we'd whiteboard stuff. Fast forward to 2000, 2020, 23, where a creative brainstorming session seemed to be just everyone staring at their computers and there wasn't that sense of interaction. What do you tell your guys to go out and do in terms of inspiring them to come up with new ideas? I think the good old-fashioned way of getting everyone in the room without any um, digital handheld devices or laptop is still the best way. You get yourself a, um, a whiteboard or blackboard, whatever it is, and with um, some some um, um, pens and you just basically sketch away and you and you argue and you brainstorm. What I do is quite often, particularly if I'm engaging with new designers, I get them all in the room and the first thing I say to them, you know, to be blunt, there are no unique ideas anymore. You mentioned the Ming Dynasty design aesthetics, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So if we want to say less is more the Teslas or the iPhones is actually a new approach. Maybe it's not. It has been done before. Yeah, it's um, which could, you know. So nothing is tr truly original. Nothing is truly unique. But you can take an idea and you can actually, you, you can find new ways of engaging with your audience. And that is the biggest challenge. I think that is probably the reason why so many young people look at smart devices, because they know that it's really difficult to find something truly unique. So all they're trying to do is actually look, basically putting a new wallpaper 
onto the wall. Whereas if you get a bunch of people in the room, we're not actually just talking about putting wallpaper onto the wall. We need to talk about what are we building? Are we bu- what are we building? Does it actually have walls? Talk about the big issue, talk about the big picture, and then come back to the detail. Whereas most, a lot of the designers that designer nowadays are too focused on the design details before the big idea. Do you use uh, design thinking in your approach? Yeah, like absolutely. What problem you're trying to solve, and what if? And um, I quite often use, uh, for example, recently uh, we I have a rapid prototyping lab where we can take a very raw idea and we will prototype it to see whether there is opportunities to actually to extend the idea. Um, so a few months ago, uh, I said to the um, our lab designer, this, look, I'm, I want to give you two materials, choose two materials and build a an origami, something that you, has different facets and is constantly can change in shape. And through that process, we actually made an electric animated origami. So with the press of a button, this is literally animating, yeah? And I use this inspirational tool to inspire designers. Um, so far, we've had at least three or four different really interesting brainstorming sessions just based on this um, tool. Uh, one of them is we had a, a car design company to see us and wanted us to collaborate with them to build seats for a flying machine. And when I switched this animated origami on, everyone scratching their heads and said, this guy's crazy. Why is he showing us this? And I said, well, let's look at it. Let's talk about it. And through that conversation brainstorming session, I thought, if it's actually a flying machine, it's actually a drone, it's multi-directional, not unidirectional like a car where the seat is always facing forward in the direction that you want to be driving in, whereas a drone is multi-directional. So the seat doesn't necessarily have to face in one direction and you may be fly by wire. There is no pilot. There is no driver as such. So by looking at that or reanimate origami, I said to them, how about instead of putting, say, two, three, four, or ten seats in the actual drone, we have a three-dimensional origami. So if you actually press it from the top of it, you will detect how many persons are in that craft and you expand with the number of seats to accommodate the number of passengers. Yeah, so it's not fixed. Because currently it's a concept, right? We don't actually know what the what the legis- legal legislation will be for seats, where they actually require seat belts, or how many seat belts, or you know where where the uh, anchor fixtures are. It's all just conceptual at the moment. Yeah. And then literally a few days later, another company came in to see me and said, well, "We have no idea what to do with this." And I said, "You know." If you ask, if you're buying um, scent or perfume or makeup in a disposable bottle, um, firstly we need to think about the environment. Yeah, it's so. How about the scent or the lotion actually comes in a sustainable, biodegradable, or um, a recyclable container 
but you actually come home and you fill these animated origami pods. And this origami pods is actually AI controlled. So it knows the, time, the day of the month and the day of the week, the time, and what mood you're in. So for example, comes Monday morning and you're rushing for work, and through this animated um, origami, it proposes a scent that fits with your mood. Come Friday night, after a week of hard work, he gives you something different that puts you in a party mode. I was going to ask you a little bit more about the sustainability angle and the relationship with design. I think that's something that you're really passionate about. And do you think there's a role for, uh, for design in building sustainable or creating sustainable products? And how much of, like, do you lose aesthetics as a result of that? There, there are a number of ways to um, be more sustainable, not just using sustainable, sustainable materials that can be recycled, whether it's actually mechanically or otherwise. And there are lots of materials that can be upcycled. In the upcycle category, it definitely will uh, affect the design aesthetics, as you say. About four years ago, and the BASF Creation Center collaborated with a fashion designer using materials to recreate fashion, clothing, and accessories. And that, actually, that show actually went on to the New York Fashion Show, and it was actually a real hit by using the material. Now, if we were to fast track that four years, um, through my personal perspective, my personal take on that is I was in a vintage uh, clothing and accessory shop um, recently, and I saw what clearly seems to be a, a vintage Chanel jacket in the window. It's got the classic sort of Chanel silhouette. And when I walked into the shop, I said to the manager, do you realize your jacket is in full sun? And I'm pretty sure it's actually been damaged. And she said, it was really interesting I mentioned it. She said, that jacket is almost 40 years old and we can't actually sell it. And I said, why? She said, well, look at the floor. And you can actually see little black speckles on the floor. The garment is actually so old, it's disintegrating. Therefore, she can't sell it. So I went back to the studio and I said to my designers, what if we actually take what we achieved four years ago by collaborating with the fashion designer using our material? What if we brief the designers and say, we want you to use biodegradable in the fiber to make the accessories and the actual garments with the intent of if someone is actually wearing a shirt, instead of saying to that person, oh, your shirt looks really old because it's discolory through age. Yeah. We're actually saying to them, that, that piece of shirt, that shirt you're wearing is actually meant to biodegrade over time it's meant to change color it's meant to sh change form because it's actually it's, it's sustainable and it's really sustainable i think when we get to that point where people actually accept yeah i mean leather and jeans is a, has definitely achieved that but getting to that point obviously it will be a huge challenge i mean there are a number of brands jeans you talked about denim there's a there's a denim brand scandinavian i think is actually uh i think it's danish or swedish uh, once you buy a pair of the jeans, you can send it back. It's uh, they will they will repair it for you until it is irreparable, and then they will actually cut it up for you and make it into another pair of uh, upcycle into another piece of. Uh, but again, it still has to be repaired, yeah, and it still has to be upcycled. 
I think there's an opportunity where we say, you know, let it deteriorate. Let it deteriorate to a point where when it's covering holes and it's changing sh- shape so badly, so what? I will continue to wear it. It doesn't need to be upcycled into another piece of garment. The more you act, the more it breaks down, the more the, the more cool it is. Danny, I was going to ask you, uh, uh, speaking of Chinese innovation, are there any particular brands, you may give us three brands that you really admire for their innovative product design or technology adaptation. Uh, what's setting them apart from the competitors? What makes them different? Uh, is there any brands that come to mind? Three brands, okay. I think DJI drones, flying machine, has been around for quite a number of years. I think they have become definitely the leader in, in that category. Yeah. And it's really interesting that technology has been utilized in the ecosystem, um, in the technology ecosystem of China, for example, uh, JD.com. Yeah, and I think JD.com has um, is looking at um, drone um, logistic delivery systems, which is something I think Amazon promised back in what 2013 or 2014. Anyway, quite a number of years ago. Um, I believe they do have some success in having that sort of um, drone delivery system, but not to the extent what JD.com has come has done in a very short space of time. So what they've achieved is amazing. They have a department, design department, to my knowledge, that only focuses on um, drone technology uh, logistic delivery systems. Uh, I'll give you another one, probably Sangsha which is a luxury Chinese fashion brand, which you may have heard of. Yeah. I think they are, if I'm not mistaken, they are backed by a French holding company. I think it's Hermes. The tagline was, you know, well, I'm not sure if it's actually a tagline, but they were described as a Chinese luxury brand with a French soul. Now, when I saw that, I was actually quite confused right? because I thought you are backed by a French luxury company, but the soul is very much Chinese. In fact, if you look at the name, Sangsha means top down, right? Or up down, which I'm not sure exactly why it's named that, but I assume we'll talk about what we'll describes the um, perfect harmony of, you know, Yin and Yang, um, past and present, or traditional versus traditional and innovation, so it's, which is very much not just um, Asian, but it's very much um, part of the Chinese culture. If you have, if you go into Sunshine, you can actually say, you know what, everything is authentic. It's authentically Chinese, but it's interpreted for a modern audience. Yeah, and. It's not necessarily less is more or so sophisticated. It's actually soulless. There's a lot of, um, yeah, sangsha, yin yang, traditional versus innovation, um, past and future. Yeah, I think it's truly innovative, I think. Danny, we get a lot of young people on this listening to the show, and we're always looking for career advice uh, from our guests, someone especially as experienced and talented as you. Uh, there is a lot of talk nowadays about AI and taking over design and creativity. And this is probably not the direction that 
that uh, maybe not the ideal direction nowadays uh, for for career opportunities. What would you say to that? What advice would you give to young people that want to uh, get into the design uh, career space? When it comes to AIs, you have to give it instructions to think, right? So if you don't have the experience or the knowledge that came with experience, you would not how to prompt it. So I think that already is probably the biggest limitation. If you wanted something that's hard, you could probably only say, I want it hard. But if you are experienced enough to know that there are many other descriptions or variations of hard, yeah, then that's where you might you may find something unique, but that still comes from a human, and no AI can actually do that. That's my opinion. Yeah, Ali, are we ready for the A/B test? Uh, yeah, absolutely, we're ready for the A/B test. So I'll start. Um, uh, Chinese design, Western design, Chinese design. A Ming or Qing? Ming. Uh, less is more, more is less. Less is more. Apple or Huawei? Wow. We. I go with wow. Apple. <laughs> Buzz or brand? Brand. Brand or design? Brand. Brand. <laughs> you know, some of the ugliest design is that you look at Google, for example. You know, I was snapping around. Yeah, you know, you look at it, it's absolutely ugly. But, you know, you can't actually, it's, from a brand perspective, it's amazing. Some of the best brands are the worst designs. But you, you trust, you trust them. That's what makes a brand. Rapid prototyping or design thinking? I'm a practical man, so I'm going to go for rapid prototyping because rapid prototyping has to come from design thinking. If you don't have design thinking, you can't actually prototype. There's nothing to prototype. If you can't create it, don't bullshit it. You're out of the, you're out of the, uh, you're out of the agency business. I get it. Okay. Uh, sustainability or aesthetics? Sustainability. Wuliangye or Guizhou Mao Tai? DJI or Shangxia? DJI and Shangxia got together, had a baby. What what would it look like? A a traditional Chinese fan that flies. Yeah? So you don't actually literally have to fan yourself with your hand, which automated would be fly, would actually basically follow you and fan you as you walk to keep you cool. That's genius. Danny, thanks for being on the show and amazing insights about the design and creativity space uh is really a unique show we've never had a, a guest like you uh ever before so and we hope that you can come back and join us sometime soon thanks again thank you for having me hopefully you invite me again after this that will definitely happen and thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode join us in a few weeks for another exciting show and to all our listeners until then have a great day Thank you.